<laughs> right, there we go. So I'm very excited at the moment because in the evening, we are working our way through the book of Romans, verse by verse, and Roland's been doing a fantastic job there. And today we're starting to work through the, the gospel of Mark, and I have the privilege of, of kicking this off today. So because we're going through a gospel, the gospel of Mark, we'll land up covering all the key issues in Jesus' life, uh, a lot of Jesus' teachings, and uh, I think we're going to get a lot out of our study through this book. What is interesting is that Mark's gospel includes nothing about the early life of Jesus. Uh, there's no annunciation, there's no angel Gabriel, there's no birth, there's no going to the temple, getting lost. It just begins with John the Baptist. Well, what do we know about uh, Mark? I'm not sure how many of you have memorized the names of the 13 disciples. You know there were 13, right? Let me switch mics. Hey? We're having a bit of background noise here. How are we doing? That, that's better. Okay, now we can all concentrate on the sermon as opposed to the noise. So, uh, the question is, why did Mark get to write a gospel if he wasn't, in fact, one of the 12 disciples, one of the 13 disciples? And that's a very interesting question. Uh, there is one little reference to Mark possibly in his gospel, and that's the story about the involuntary streaker which is covered in Mark 14, verse 51. There's a description here about a young man who's following people around wearing nothing but a linen cloth, and he gets seized when he, when he makes a run for it, but he leaves the linen cloth and runs away naked. So I don't know how many of you even have picked up this little detail in the Bible, but but scholars seem to think that this is a reference to Mark, that he maybe lived in a house quite close to the Garden of Gethsemane and where Jesus was betrayed. And the thinking is that uh, Mark was this teenager, this youngster. He sneaks out of bed at night, sort of puts his sheet around him or his duvet, is sneaking around, what's going on here? Oh, Jesus is praying there, all this kind of thing. And then when he's caught, he makes, a, he makes a duck for it. And so we have the naked fugitive. And the idea is that this is a cameo appearance, a cameo appearance of Mark in his gospel. Well, uh, some more things that we know about Mark is that there's obviously a strong Latin-Roman connection with his family because he's, his name is Marcus. That's a very Latin-Roman-y kind of a name. We also know that he's, his folks lived in a nice big house, and that's always been a sign of wealth wherever you are. Um, and the house where his folks lived was often used for prayer meetings and was quite possibly the site of, of the Last Supper with Jesus. We know from places like Acts chapter 12 that uh, after Acts chapter 12 verse 11 happened, <laughs> they went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. We also know that this family had a servant, so this is this young guy that's always slinking around. He's not one. Of, it's like when you've got a boy, you're, you're a girl and you've got a boyfriend, your brother's always like 
sneaking around what's going on. It's that kind of situation. That's who Mark is, the young guy always watching from a distance. Stuff's going on in his family. People are coming and going from the house. So he got to meet everybody. We also know that he had stubby fingers. Um, and we know that because he had a particular nickname in Greek, and that's what the nickname was. That's old stubby fingers over there. And his name was John Mark. Sometimes people that lived in multiple cultures, you'd have a Roman name and a, and a, and a Hebrew name. And so he was kind of John Mark, or John or Mark, depending on who he was with. This is also the first gospel ever to be written. It was written in about 50 AD. So where did Mark get, get the, the credentials to be able to write the gospels, the, the gospel that he did? Well, church tradition tells us that he was Peter's interpreter. And so Mark went on many, many missionary journeys. Here's just a couple of them. Acts 12, we see John, also called Mark, is hanging around with Paul and Silas when he's going on missionary journeys. There's also that account in Acts chapter 13 where the Lord says, set aside for me Paul and Barnabas. They go on a mission trip, and we read at the bottom there, John was with them as, as their helper. So John's kind of the guy there to carry the bags. Yeah, that was John's role. He was also Barnabas's cousin, so maybe that's what helped him to get the job. You know, family connections and all that. Um, but, but later on in life, uh, Barnabas and Saul have a bit of a fallout, and it's actually over John Mark, because Barnabas in Acts 15 wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it was a particularly good idea, because John Mark had bailed on them previously. So, so Paul was done with, with John Mark. Um, so then Barnabas said, okay, well, I'm sticking with my family. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Actually, a great example of godly Christian leaders disagreeing with each other over significant things, like who should come on our missionary journey with us, but, but each doing um, what the Lord is leading them to do. But there was a bit of a reconciliation in the end for John Mark, because in Timothy 4, Paul can finally write, hey, send that John Mark over to my place because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So that's a little bit of history of John Mark, but all we need to know is that John Mark traveled around with the big guys, and, and he was pretty clued up as to the teachings of Jesus. Church tradition also tells us that John Mark traveled to Alexandria in 49 AD and planted the first church in Africa. We know that the Ethiopian was the first African to preach the gospel in, in Africa, presumably, but John Mark was the guy who got to plant a church there. So let's read the first 15 verses from this great gospel because this is what we're studying today. Let's see what old stubby fingers wrote. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came down from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. This is not a safari. And angels attended to him. It was a threat to his very life. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. I think we need to pray before we go any further. Lord, as we study these 15 verses now, we pray that you would make them come alive, that you would grant us understanding, and that you would speak to each one of us. We submit ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We often refer to this book as the Gospel of Mark. But he calls it the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the gospel about Jesus Christ. I want you to just get your head around the meaning of the word gospel or euangelion in the Greek language. The, the word gospel, euangelion, means happy announcement. In other words, when people came back from a war and they declared, we've won, that was a gospel. That was a happy announcement. If somebody told you the rugby score yesterday and you're a shark supporter, that's the gospel. That, that was a gospel. Good news, a happy announcement. Liverpool fans finally got somewhere. And that would have been a, a happy announcement for them. The same announcement for province was not gospel yesterday. It's all perspective. So a gospel is by definition a happy announcement. And so Mark writes, I want to tell you about the happy announcement. Or my happy announcement is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Elsewhere it's referred to the good news of repentance. Repentance. Because repenting is good news, because it prepares you for God. 
And it's also called the gospel of the kingdom. Have I got those there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we find these phrases, the happy announcement about repentance or the happy announcement about the kingdom. That's the meaning of the term gospel. Let's move on. Verse 2. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. I want us to just pause here and see that Mark is tying in what he's about to say, the happy announcement. He's tying it into the Old Testament. He's, he's got one sentence into, well, he's just said it's the introduction. I'm about to the happy announcement. And the announcement begins by referencing the Old Testament. He could have just said, let me tell you about Jesus. God is doing a new thing. He doesn't say that at all. He says, we need, to, we need to root what we're doing in the Old Testament. I want you to understand, Jews and Gentiles, what we're talking about here has, has a long history. We've been building up to this for 2,000 years. In fact, much longer since God called a guy called Abraham. Well. So how as Christians should we view the Old Testament Andy Stanley infamously said a few months ago, he preached a sermon, we can unhitch. Just unhitch the Old Testament and let that thing go. He, he feels that the Old Testament is a hindrance to people becoming followers of Jesus. He feels all you need to do is understand the death and resurrection of Jesus and you're good to go. Some Christians are embarrassed about the Old Testament. And so they think in order to reach the modern world, we need to unhitch and move on. Other Christians suffer from another error, and that's to see there's, to act like there's no difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Some people want us to carry on obeying Jewish laws. Ooh, what's with that? Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to celebrate Jewish feasts when we could celebrate the thing that the feasts are actually pointing to? And I'm all for celebrating Jewish feasts. Nothing wrong with doing that. There's great depth and understanding that comes there. But we must understanding those feasts are all pointing to stuff in the New Testament. The Seventh-day Adventists don't see the difference, the discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they're wanting us to still obey laws and, and worship on a Saturday and kind of be, be born-again Hebrews. Rather, we need to appreciate the Old Testament but see it as fulfilled in the New Testament. That's what Mark's doing here when he says, let me begin my gospel, my happy announcement about Jesus. Let me root it in the Old Testament for you. There are 250 quotes in the New Testament. 
from the Old Testament. There are a thousand allusions to the Old Testament. Every book in the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament except from the book of Obadiah. Jesus constantly used the Old Testament in his teaching. He said to some people, he said, you're in error because you don't know the, the Scriptures. The only Bible the early church had was the Old Testament. How can we possibly unhitch and move on? It is the Old Testament that provides the conceptual framework for so much of what's in the new. In fact, I would go so far as to say if you don't have the Old Testament and understand the Old Testament, you cannot understand the New Testament and what it's all about. So Mark begins with a quote from Isaiah. The only problem is the first part of the quote isn't from Isaiah. <gasps> Ooh, what are we going to do about that? Okay, we get around it because most of the quote is from Isaiah, and he's just throwing in the, I will send my messenger ahead of you, which comes from Malachi. There it is, Malachi 3.1. See, I will send my messenger ahead of you to prepare the way before me. This is talking about John the Baptist. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire. That's talking about Jesus. But, but John, the, the messenger, is going to come. So Mark alludes to this, but he could not necessarily be quoting this, simply using it as a phrase that is identical to introduce Isaiah's quote. And here's the quote from Isaiah. It's a messianic prophecy, and it's talking about John the Baptist. A voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley should be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. This reminds me of the Cape Town cycle tour. Every year I see the street sweepers coming along the route and they actually vacuum clean the route. It is the, the cleanest Cape Town is ever in the year. You can eat off those streets. Every little pothole is filled. Every stone moved out of the way. Metaphorically, this is what John the Baptist was to do for Jesus, to prepare the road. You know, if the American president goes anywhere, they, they weld shut all the manhole covers so people can't pop out and kill Trump. <laughs> that, that's also preparing the way for an important person. That's what John's role was here, to, to make it smooth, make it clean, get it ready, prepare the hearts of the people for Jesus to come. What else do we know about John the Baptist? He was Jesus' cousin, he was slightly older than Jesus by a few months, and he met Jesus when he was still in his mother's womb. Isn't that exciting? When Mary came into the room, we read that John the Baptist in his mother's womb stirred, 
and could sense that he was in the presence of Jesus. This is just one of the reasons why we know that abortion is, is a sin. That that is a person in the womb. John the Baptist, when he was in his mother's womb, was filled with the Spirit, could sense that Jesus, who was in his mother's womb, was in the room. John the Baptist is described as being God's messenger. He's God's messenger. That's how Mark says. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, bringing a message, preparing the way. And Jesus tells us in Luke 7 that among those born of woman, there's no one greater than John. No one greater than John. It's quite a, quite a recommendation, I must say. John's second role was to prepare the way for Jesus, to prepare the way. He's the messenger going ahead. And as I've been reflecting on the life of, and ministry of John the Baptist, four things come to mind. Number one, his ministry was to be an example for people of a person sold out to God. The whole Judean countryside went out to have a look. Where is this crazy guy who's living for God? He lived a simple life. He separated himself from all that was sinful. My understanding is that he was also unmarried. He was focused on living, living the life of a prophet. When people had to guard in the desert, that in itself was quite a, a thing for them to do. It was like a pilgrimage. Go and see this John Carrida. Let's hear what he's got to say. Don't feel too sorry for him, though, when it says he ate locusts and wild honey. Another translation of the word locust here is that carob stuff. You know that tastes like chocolate? So, so maybe he ate chocolate and honey and lived in the desert. But he did dress in camel fur, so maybe that's not so nice. But John's life was a witness, and he lived out what it is to live for God. He was also a preacher and a teacher. Verse 4 of the gospel, John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching. Another thing that John did is call out sin in people's lives. Pretty much the only thing he did. That was his job. Point out everybody's sins so that they could get ready to meet Jesus. He wasn't a prosperity preacher. But, I mean, you already know that because he lived in the desert. But John called out sin in people. And one of the people's sins that God prompted him to call out was the governor Herod's son, because he'd taken a fancy to his wife's, to his brother's wife. So he divorced his own wife and married his brother's wife. You can read it here in Mark 6. Herod had given orders to have John arrested and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he'd married. 
for John had been saying he wouldn't let up on this thing. And it got a bit irritating after a while. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Today, it's not cool to call out sin in people, is it? And there's also this unwritten thing that we don't kind of, you know, criticize uh, political leaders. Well, uh, oh, they're not Christians. We can't hold them to Christian standards, you know. Well, John went off to prison for that, just saying. Eventually, he had his head chopped off. You know the story about that. Herod's, Herod's daughter was at um, his wife's daughter, did a sexy little dance one day at a party. And Herod said, hey, you've impressed me and my friends so much. Ask whatever you want up to half my kingdom and I'll give it to you. So she had a little chat to her mom and mom said, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. So that's how he got his head chopped off. So when he wasn't pointing out people's sins to them, he baptized people. His message was, repent of your sins and prepare your heart for what God is about to do. One thing that really struck me here is the second last line where it says, confessing their sins, they were baptized in the River Jordan. How many of you have seen baptisms in this baptismal font? How many of you have ever seen anybody actually confess a sin? <laughs> you see what we've done to baptism? And I know that what John the Baptist was doing wasn't Christian baptism. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, but when John the Baptist baptized people, it wasn't a nice religious ceremony or something that you get, you get your parents to do for you when you were a baby. It wasn't a nice religious ceremony where you sort of acknowledged you were a sinner. No, you had to name your sins. <laughs> and people confessing their sins, it was like, oh, I stole like this money from work. Uh, I've actually committed adultery. I am a porn addict. I mean, this is the stuff that would get thrown out while people were baptizing. No wonder people went out in the desert to watch. <laughs> and, <laughs> and people who were baptized with John, this is not Christian baptism. Baptism was commonplace in Judaism. A devout Jewish woman, after her period, would have a ritual washing in the mikvah. It, it was a, a religious ceremony. And, and Jewish people often did washings and baptisms. And so what John the Baptist was doing wasn't like totally unusual. It was come and confess your sins, let me dunk you as a way to show that you're turning over a new leaf, you're now living for God. And in Acts 19, we read about people that had been baptized by John needed to be baptized as Christians. Because Christian baptism is about identifying yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And John fourthly pointed people to Jesus. After, after me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Do you know how unworthy you have to feel to not feel that you can touch a person's shoe? Well, that's John the Baptist's attitude to Jesus. He's saying to the people, this guy that I'm telling you about, he is so awesome that even for me as the greatest guy that ever lived, and his cousin, by the way, I am not even worthy to touch the thong of his sandals. Among slaves, there was even a pecking order. You know, someone got to clean the toilet, someone else got to, you know, test the wine. There were different jobs that slaves did. And one of the lowliest of slaves' jobs was to wash feet and take off visitors' shoes. And John's saying, when it comes to Jesus, I'm not even worthy of doing that menial task. Quite a way to describe yourself in relationship to Jesus. Very different to how many Christians today talk to Jesus, think about Jesus. Oh, if I was Jesus, I wouldn't do that. He talks about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I baptize in water, people, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, the phrase doesn't flow nicely in English, but John says, I baptize water, but he will baptize you in Holy Spirit. It's a reference, a metaphor as being dipped in the river of God. That's what baptism in the Spirit is. Why was Jesus baptized? After all, he had no sins to confess. It's a good, good question. Why was Jesus baptized? Because he came to be baptized. And John, of course, didn't want to baptize Jesus. He said, no, 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 you should be baptizing me. But we know from the other Gospels that, oh, there it is, Matthew 3, 14, John tried to deter him, saying, no, I need to be baptized with you. Why are you coming to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. I think Jesus was baptized in part, it was part of his solidarity with humanity as our perfect representative going along with what all God was doing and showing his humility. That's why Jesus was, was baptized by John. Two other things happened at Jesus' baptism. Number one, he received the Holy Spirit, and number two, he got affirmation from the Father. He saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And we can ask ourselves the question, what's with that? Wasn't Jesus already filled with the Spirit? Had he really lived a perfect life for 30 years and never sinned and not had the Holy Spirit and only received the Spirit now? I believe the Spirit had been with Jesus in Jesus, but this is an empowering for ministry. 
This is an empowering for ministry and a setting aside for ministry. The second wonderful thing that happens here to Jesus is he hears the Father's affirmation, and great to be reading this on Father's Day. So he's filled with the Spirit, set aside for ministry, and he hears a voice from heaven saying, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. He hadn't begun his earthly ministry yet or died on the cross, but he had lived and loved God for 30 years. And God's saying, I love you, you are my son, and I am pleased with you. And our little Father's Day message today is how important these words are to our children, our daughters, and our sons. From them to hear from both parents, but particularly from dads, because sometimes dads don't say this enough. To confirm our children's identity, to say the words, you are loved, to say, I am pleased with you, even if, even if there are a few things you wish could be changed. <laughs> to affirm children, and why are, why are so many children wild today, suffering from depression, joining gangs, whatever it is, they don't have that sense of identity. They don't have a, an affirming parent or adults in their life saying, you're worth something, I love you. You, you, are, you are special, you are great, you are wonderful. And Jesus gets that here at his baptism. Like, thanks, Dad. We're not done yet, sorry. So this is a high point. The heavens open. You're in front of the crowds. Boom, what a way to launch a ministry. Heaven opening. Dove settles on you. Booming voice. And then we read, at once the Spirit led him out into the desert. Yeah. And like I said, it wasn't for a safari. The highest point in Jesus' life, followed by what is about to be the lowest point. And if Jesus was not spared suffering and testing, why would we ever expect to be? The health and wealth prosperity preachers have hoodwinked us into thinking our lives should be peachy. Well, it wasn't for Jesus, and it wasn't for John the Baptist, and it ain't going to be for us. You're my son. I love you. You're filled with the Spirit. Right, let's go into the desert for 40 years, days, with, for some of us it's years, for, for snakes and scorpions and leopards and caracals and whatever other terrifying things there are in the middle of the night when I'm fasting. That's what Jesus went through. 
And we're very quick to say, oh, Satan is giving me such a hard time. And who are you that you think Satan's got time for you? Like, okay, sure, demons are out to get us, but Jesus got the personal attention of the Satan. You know, sometimes I like to just take people on in a, in a sermon. Today I'm going to take on the Pope. Last week he changed the Lord's Prayer. How's that? You just get out there and change it. You can do that when you're the Pope. The, the Pope decided that what the Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into temptation, doesn't fit with the Pope's theology, so he's just changed it. If you're a good Catholic, you now need to pray and lead me not or help me not to fall into temptation. So it's a very subtle change, but I'm not so sure we can just change the translation of Scripture because it, when it doesn't fit with our theology. Um, so you can read all about it. It's been in the papers. But in the Lord's Prayer, we are meant to pray and lead us not into temptation because the Greek word temptation is perasmos, and it means temptation, yes, but also trials and testing. You know you get words that can't have a direct translation. You need a couple of words to capture the meaning. So in the Lord's Prayer, we're saying, and Lord, lead me not into trial and testing and temptation. It's, a, it's an appeal to God to spare us from suffering and trials in this life. We mustn't say, Lord, please don't let me fall into temptation. That kind of misses the point. And here's Jesus being led by the Spirit into a period of trials and testing and hardship. And you know what happened there. But he's not the only one having a hard time. John was put into prison. Had his head chopped off. If you ever think you're your life's falling apart, which all of our lives do fall apart from time to time, sometimes that can be God leading us into trial and temptation. That's why the Scripture says, consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds, because God is doing something, testing our faith, honing our character, Developing empathy in us, whatever else he does in trials and temptations. Don't be too quick to blame the devil, because sometimes it's God. And now that John is off the scene, Jesus begins his ministry. Verse 15, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's leave it there. Thank you, Lord, for this good news that 